Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Woo! And you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Obviously. Yes. Then join us in the curiosity shop at Bones and Bobbins. Wait, nope. It would be at <laughs> patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Yeah, I bet you could find a link at bonesandbobbins.com. Yeah. That is true. <laughs> We're we're doing amazing, right? Um, <laughs> yes. And do you know why you want to scurry on over to uh, our Patreon? Why would that? It's be? yeah. It's because your yes, your generous support helps make the show happen, and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude. <laughs> mm-hmm. And entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group, which is a goddamn delight. It is. It it absolutely is. There's a lot of insomnia-driven <laughs> sharing. In the best the possible way. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no drama. Just fun. Nope. Nope. It is a chill environment. Except filled with not chill people. But that's cool. (laughs) In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. I do like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more. Obviously. Yes. Then join us in the curiosity shop at Bones and Bobbins. Wait, nope. It would be at <laughs> patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Yeah, I bet you could find a link at bonesandbobbins.com. Yeah. That is true. <laughs> we're, we're doing amazing. Right? Um, <laughs> yes. And do you know why you want to scurry on over to uh, our Patreon? Why would that it's, be? Yeah, it's because your, yes, your, generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude. Mm-hmm. And entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group, which is a goddamn delight. It is. It, it absolutely is. There's a lot of insomnia-driven <laughs> sharing. In the best the possible way. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no drama. Just fun. Nope. Nope. It is a chill environment, except filled with not chill people, but that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway. Hello, Morbid Makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, Marvelously Misanthropic Hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 4, Episode 6, Dreadnought, Sink Knot. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast, and I go by she and her. 
And I'm Natalie from Uberdork Designs, an official true crime creative, and my pronouns are she and her. <sighs> All right. So my brain's like a Muppet on fire. How are you? <laughs> I am, I think I am the Muppet right after the bucket of water's been tossed on it. <laughs> All right. So, so sort of steaming and looking around with some yeah. confusion? Yeah, a little little bit. It was it was a wild holiday weekend. <laughs> oh yeah, it was a holiday weekend. It was. It was. Uh, when we were recording this that is. Yeah, so. I still consistently managed to not be involved in holidays even though I you know, have a house and live in a small town. Yeah, I mean, we, it was, yeah, we weren't really involved. We, it was a lot of shuffling. I had one offspring uh, attend a national conference down in Iowa, but I had to get them to, like, the bus stop with the rest of their, the rest of their group uh, in Madison. And the other one was going in the other direction, and there was just scheduling and dri- driving. So much driving. So much driving. I hate driving. I in the amount in the amount that I drove, uh, just from Thursday through Tuesday, we could have mm-hmm. driven to visit you and back. I think. Well, I think you should have done that, <laughs> right? My money would have been on that, but nobody listens to me. Um, I do have a sad, and that's I was not able to procure lilacs to do the entourage. Well, because they're in different blooms in different places, and we're like, yes, because the uh, neighbors uh, we went, we visited part of the entire journey. We visited my parents, and there's a giant lilac bush there. So it's like we're gonna pick them, you know, like right when we're getting ready to leave, and they'd they had already just they'd bloomed and they were gone and i was like son of a so i did not get them but i am prepared i have my kit ready to go and next year all of the all of the entourage will occur i mean it it happens i have now given all of my lilacs a haircut so that will either be a really good thing or I will miss a season of blooming. I think I did it fast enough for it to be the correct time. I don't know what I'm doing. It's fine. I'm going to go with it's all good because that's a good answer. Yeah, it's going to have to be because I am very allergic to oak pollen. And Oof. that is just, I, I live surrounded by woods. And I'm as you may hear, I'm a little bit uh, <clears throat> scratchy. <laughs> when you um, text me about the oak pollen, I had literally just snorted a couple rounds of Flonase. <laughs> yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. A little bump. A little bump here a and there. A little bump here and there. Yeah. One in well, every room in the house. <laughs> yeah. And I picked now to um, start my immunotherapy for allergies, which mm. is great i mean it's i mean allergy shots except it's not a shot it is sublingual but um oh, that's easier then yeah but like 
couldn't I have started like three months earlier? <laughs> the answer is yes, I could have if I'd gotten my shit together. <laughs> anyway, oh God. So do you know what's happening in my yard right now? Um, the growing of things? Among other things, yes. <laughs> so, I have a mystery that is unfolding. A caper, Ooh. if you will. Oh, I love a good caper. Yeah, so, I am not entirely sure what creature is responsible for this, but something keeps digging up, but not eating my strawberry plants. Oh, just like, whoo, it, it looks like something dove into that particular planting bed and like did a backstroke. And it's happened three times now. Um, and they didn't eat it? No. And That's so weird. They're also right behind the strawberries. Um, I planted poppies. They're also not eating the poppies, although they are digging them up and throwing them around. So, and I mean, those are seedlings, so I, I have no idea. So uh, something tantramatic. <laughs> well, Jeremy's theory is squirrels burying things. Oh, okay. That sounds that sounds like it could be a thing. But like, fuck you! What? What? Right? Th- there are so many places on my property. What the right. fuck is that? But if they're smart, then it's already been you know recently dug, so the lo- the soil's gonna be nice and nice and fluffy and easy to to yeah. climb into. Uh, sorry, there's some. Someone, something, tapping on the wall. And I cannot tell if I have just vibrated something um, with my incessant movement. (laughs) Better fucking not be. But yeah. Although I have also rescued a chipmunk from the swimming pool uh, day before yesterday. So maybe... I, I don't know. But I have surrounded all of my strawberry plants not with wood mulch, but with pebbled okay. mulching, and just around the plants. And it seems that whatever has been diving into them did do that again last night, but did not unearth my newly surrounded strawberry plants. So it's a mystery. I fully suspect that by the by next year at this time you're gonna have you're gonna have some kind of outdoor camera. <laughs> oh, I we do. do we you? have outdoor security cameras. It's just that we haven't put the the one that faces that way up yet <laughs> for a good reason. Um, we have some neighborhood cats, and I'm fairly certain that one of them was living in our barn. Oh. Uh, over the winter. And uh, this one's nickname is Chunky Tabby. It is <laughs> also the uh, the one responsible for making the woo sound <laughs> um, that 
really confused me um, and started the entire horny animals at my house uh, early spring. (laughs) And so I'm going to put the camera in there so I could see where Chunky Tabby was sleeping so I could put a cat bed there. And, um, well didn't get around to doing that and so therefore that camera has not been deployed elsewhere (laughs) that'll happen that'll happen yeah i need to get a camera up there though um anyway how are you (laughs) good hey speaking of speaking of horny animals happy pride month (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) i can't argue with it fair (laughs) People, if you're listening, uh, vote, 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 vote. Our entire country is attacking. Yeah, hey, don't be an asshole and protect trans kids. Protect trans kids. you know, trans adults. Yes, trans human beings. Mm -hmm. Also, drag is not a fucking crime. It is an art form and it is wonderful. Yeah, it's also like super mainstream. Like inoffensive old tv shows yeah Mm. right seriously Mm. like if it was good enough for that was okay back then all i'm thinking is i'm fairly certain i love lucy has at least one episode in which ricky is wearing drag tom hank's career started with bosom buddies Mm. wherein he and was it oh i can't remember his name now uh and it's gonna kill me uh they dressed up as women to get an apartment in an all-women's unit in New York because it was cheap. Oh, I mean, fair enough. Like, at the Barbizon? Yeah, so they had to sit there and and change out from... But they absolutely 100% drag. Excellent. My kids grew up going to drag brunch at Hamburger Mary's. Because it's fun. It's fun, and it's wonderful. And I just... It breaks my heart, um... It breaks my heart that, you know, people are so quick to go, oh, let's buy this. You know, look, I have this rainbow shirt and I'm going to come party with you. But yet they're silent when these atrocious laws are being passed that are already affecting lives. Um, So. So fuck you guys. Yeah. If you happen to be part of it. Mm -hmm. And fuck yeah, if you're not. Exactly. And you are speaking up. Yes. Yeah. So that's that. Indeed. Which 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 um would probably um make us maybe take a moment before we dive in mm-hmm. to thank all of our Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. Yes. Um and if you join us right about now in a future podcast you will get your own special, totally normal, not at all creepy, of course not, not us, no. welcome shout out, like right about here, like right about now, I'd be shouting your name out and praising you for your amazingness. It's true. It is very true. But since we don't have a new person to shout out, we're going to shout out all of our wonderful current Patreon members. Yes. You are the best the best and we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you 
Absolutely. I'll bring the deet. <laughs> oh, God. Insect life. <laughs> and if you want in on this fun, not only do you get some awesome surprises and such, you will get a ginormous backlog of Patreon-only episodes. I think we're coming up on, I think we're ready to record number 63. So 65. That's a lot 65. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I set up the damn file. Uh, but yeah, oh, wait. So no, I'm wrong. 64. 64? Yep. There we go. A lot. Over 60. <laughs> and uh, that's a lot of extra fun. I'm just saying. There's it's some true. surprises in there. There's some guests. There's a lot of cats. Um, yeah. So do it. Join okay. Us. So before we get started, just so um, so you are seeing what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. um, and listeners, you can do this too. I encourage you to pull up the second and third links um, for my research materials in the show notes so one is from war history online and the other is um the u.s naval institute oh my (laughs) so weird all right so Today, I'm going to tell you about a thing that made me go, what, when I saw the, uh, the photos, and that is the USS Recruit from 1917 that was a battleship in Union Square, New York City. Yeah. All right. Sorry about that. In 1917 photos, Union Square in Manhattan is still weirdly recognizable as the same modern day. Um, I am at 2133. What are you at? Okay. So you just missed the... Oh, it probably happened when you pulled up those links. That is. Yeah. 
And we can count again so you can sink. <laughs> All right, let me know when you're ready. All right. Hit record. Seriously. It's like. And. At first one, glance, two, I would have thought three. it was like an AI thing. Just my brain would not have. That's all right. Computed. All right. Like, it's that out of place and thought. So in you know? 1917 photos, Union Square in Manhattan is still weirdly recognizable as the same modern day Union Square that <laughs> I personally know very well. I can see a building that I've been in hundreds of times. Um, that is where a Barnes and Noble happens to preside mm-hmm. over the park, which, hot tip, uh, contains public restrooms that don't require you to buy anything, which is a rare gem in the city. So just, you it know, is. put that in your back pocket in case you need it ever. Um, and I can also see the building where the Petco that never, ever, ever has anything in stock that I need lives Mm-mm. and so i could go on in that vein for all of the buildings around union square that still exist but i will spare you the point is <laughs> nope. that the union square of 1917 is so recognizable to me that looking at the photo feels a bit like landing land uh, let's try that again point is the union square of 1917 is so recognizable to me that looking at the photo feels a bit like landing in uncanny valley or like being a time traveler wandering around my own hometown um just a hundred years in the past and that's probably why seeing a giant fucking dreadnought battleship sitting smack in the middle of the park in an old photo was all it took to drag me down a serious rabbit hole. And to be clear, when I say dreadnought battleship, I truly do mean an actual battleship, not just like a model or something. Um... Except Union Square, as some of you may know, is now, and was then, most definitely not a waterway. No. And as far as I could tell from historical maps, unlike much of formerly swampy Lower Manhattan, it didn't even start out as one. Um, So, what was the battleship doing there? Yeah, so that brings us to the USS Recruit. In 1916, as World War I raged on on the other side of the world, the U.S. was really trying not to get involved. At the time, most Americans were on the side of remaining neutral, and the Wilson administration would continue to follow that policy until Kaiser Wilhelm II made the decision to target neutral merchant uh, ships and vessels, Mm. uh, sinking 10 American shipping vessels in two months. Um, And that happened in early 1917. That's a lot. Yeah, it's... 
and it was all over it just wasn't it wasn't in like the same area it was like totally normal shipping routes that were supposed to be neutral it wasn't just that ships were being sneaky sneaky right they they weren't Ooh. and given how long it took to ship things back then that would fuck the economy it's true. Sorry. A, a cop just drove by, which I'm used... It's because we're talking about New York. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, so because the Kaiser was like, ha ha, I'm a shink... Shink? I'm a shink. I shink your battleship. I'm, I'm going to shink your battleship. <laughs> um, since the Kaiser decided that he was going to go ahead and sink... 10 American merchant ships. Uh, Suddenly the U.S., with ships under attack, was forced to enter the war that it had tried to steer clear of. So he fucked around and found out. (laughs) He fucked around and found out. And I, I guess he must have... Like, you don't do that just to be a dick. Like, he must have wanted to goad the U.S. into the war, but that also seems kind of dumb to me. But I guess the U.S. at that point was not nece- was not known as the military power it mm. would be known as. So um, maybe they did just elect to fuck around and find out. <laughs> I'm not sure. So when the U.S. entered the war in 1917, it was on the heels of disappointingly low 1916 Navy recruitment numbers in New York City. Mm. And to put that in context, the goal was 2,000 new recruits that year, but the city only delivered 900. So not great. And embarrassed by that, then Mayor John P. Mitchell, who I have never heard of in my life, so I guess he wasn't that exciting, um, under the direction of the Mayor's Committee on National Defense, came up with an idea to attract much more attention to the Navy by way of an extremely New York City spectacle. Why not build a battleship in the middle of Union Square? <laughs> I could think of a few reasons, but, you know. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, John P. Mitchell does not care about your opinion. <laughs> Figures. But, yeah. So the ship's designers, Don Barber and Jules Guerin, based the vessel loosely on the Navy's battleship Maine. Um, and the USS Recruit was launched... On the 30th of May, 1917, just seven weeks after the United States entered World War I. Wow. Which, like, holy shit. That's quick, <laughs> That's fast. Right? Um, and I, I'm not sure if it was already in the works. I mean, I, I assume It almost that, had to be, because if you're, so, I mean, that's a lot of materials to source. Uh, it's New York City, though. Yeah. And the Pine Barrens are upstate. Oh, true, so, true. Um, But it's one of those things where I, I assume that the U.S. government was nervously eyeing the rest of the world mm-hmm. and p- 
planned on ramping up recruitment goals anyway Mm. so um so i don't know it it may have been absurdly fast it may also have been already in the works none of my research um gave me exact dates for for that but since the 2016 numbers were the thing that spurred it Mm -hmm. and Mm. it launched in may yeah Mm, that is pretty fast it is yeah anyway so here is what she was working with you may be sitting here wondering to yourself self what does a battleship in union square actually look like well i can tell you because space was at a premium even in 1917 manhattan the uss recruit was 250 feet long with a beam which is the width that the widest part of the boat because research um so the beam was 40 feet making her half the size of a world war one era nevada class super dreadnought battleship wow dun 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 (laughs) um which sounds terrifying to me 10 out of 10 for the name well done (laughs) yep so uh yep she is in fact a super dreadnought battleship (laughs) she's mighty mighty just letting all hang out yeah she's a wood (laughs) (laughs) all right i'm done (laughs) muppet brain muppet brain (laughs) (laughs) okay all right, so I'm going to very, very quickly go over two things that are going to make World War One buffs scream at me from the background, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did not have time to go down every single one of these rabbit holes. Um, but if I get something spectacularly wrong, send me a DM, and I will correct it in a future update and, you know, add it to the show notes or whatever. So, a Nevada-class battleship. Without digging too deeply into the details, like I said, a Nevada-class battleship was a 1910s armored ship that was designed for long-range engagements, not like the up-close shooting cannons at each other um, that previous warfare had included. And it paved the way for a future class of strategically armored ships um and that just meant that these nevada class battleships weren't fully armored they were armored in the places most likely to sustain um hits from the actual firepower that they would be expecting Mm -hmm. so the ship was lighter because it was um it was called all or nothing armor and the places that were likely to get hit had 
extremely thick armor <laughs> and the rest of the ship didn't making it more easily maneuverable in the water and now we come to dreadnought dreadnought is a really good name yeah and there are many intricacies of battleship classifications and designs that are well beyond me but from what i understand a dreadnought battleship had what was called an all big gun armament scheme uh, which was basically large caliber guns at a uniform size, so all of the ammunition for all of the guns would fit all of the guns. That's smart. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and these ships also had steam turbine propulsion, which was not the case for earlier ships. And the goal, it would seem to me, was getting a combination of the most protection, the most speed, and the most firepower bang for your buck. Um, because obviously they had to make these ships cost-effective to mass manufacture, mm -hmm. but they also had to make them fit for modern warfare. And so the Dreadnought and super dreadnought which is super <laughs> <laughs> all right anyway um the thing about this particularly successful publicity stunt that was to onlookers and to those directly involved in the day-to-day of the project um, was its success in being fully functional and authentic looking. And so the USS recruit was manned around the clock by sailors from the Newport training station. She was an actual training ship. Um, she was fitted with a wireless station, full officer's quarters, doctor's quarters, cabins, medical exam rooms for recruits. Her armament matched those of the Nevada-class ships, just in wood. Um, three twin turrets with six faux 14-inch guns, <clears throat> excuse me, as the main battery, and ten 5-inch guns in the casements. Uh, which I believe is what makes it the Super Dreadnought, because it has the two different kinds for different things, um, plus two one-pound saluting gun replicas. And she also had um, a conning tower. Conning tower? I'm not really sure. And two high cage masts. And a fake smokestack that really <laughs> pulled all of it together. Um, hold on just a second. Gotta have that smokestack. <clears throat> well, I happen to know that there are steam tunnels in that area that still provide steam heat 
to customers in Manhattan. Like, the city has, like, you would have electric gas. You could also have steam heat. That's awesome. Um, so I feel like they could have made that thing smoke. Maybe they did. I don't know. Um, you think, if you're going through all that trouble. It was heated by gas, though. Okay. Um, just fun fact. <laughs> all right. So anyway... After it was built, eventually the Women's Reserve Camouflage Corps, who we have met before, Mm -hmm. uh, painted the USS Recruit with Dazzle Camouflage in pink, green, blue, black, and white geometric patterns to discourage torpedo attacks from the subway station, (laughs) maybe? I mean, you're... Because that that was there. That that was in fact Are there any right there. Photos of that or no? It's just black and white, right? Uh, I don't think that was a thing. Because um, I bet you that was oh, that would have been just absolutely something to see a color. Quite something, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine like a psychedelic boat I in mean, the middle of Union Square, dad. fully manned. <laughs> That from the, where the YMCA song came from. <laughs> mm. uh, I, it came from a lot of things, but I believe that the was in Greenwich Village. <laughs> right. Um. So yeah, I I don't know. I guess they were concerned about um, German torpedo attacks from the subway. Fine. The land ship had a thirty-six piece band, and forty or 55, depending on the source, crew members, which apparently were not the same people um, because the ship reportedly maintained a full crew of about 80 men. Okay. Yep. And I think that sort of gives you an idea of how large this was. Oh, yeah. I mean, we say that it was half the size of the ship that it was modeled after. It's still friggin' huge. But but there are 80 people right. living and working. Like, they aren't going home. They are stationed on this ship. Yeah. And so it was a working ship surrounded by skyscrapers. And it was specifically designed, like I said, for Navy uh, and also Marine recruitment. Although the Marines do not seem to be mentioned in any of the other research that I have been in, except to say that um, recruitment happened. So I guess the Navy was also recruiting. And it also hosted Liberty Bond drives and social events. Okay. And one of the biggest jobs that the recruit had was to operate a fully functioning naval ship, even though it was on land. So sailors training there followed a normal routine, beginning their day at 0600 hours, scrubbing the decks, doing laundry, like in the open, on the decks, um, conducting drills, attending classes, and standing guard. And these soldiers who were standing guard were able to interact with the public and answer questions about life aboard the ship. 
which is kind of cool. I think it's pretty um, fun. Like, that was part of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and public tours were also offered, allowing people to walk around the vessel and see the activities performed by the sailors who were literally living their lives as sailors on a ship. And they could also, at that time, ask questions of the sailors and ask about joining the Navy. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and at that. night, yeah, and at night, and I think this is particularly cool, um, this may be a, because I spent almost 20 years living in this area sort of thing, but there's something really magical about things in New York lit up at night. Oh, definitely. And at night, the ship was lit up by searchlights and its own ship lights. Um, so it glowed in oh. Union Square. That and I mean, these were just the normal lights mm-hmm. that the boats would have, the normal searchlights and normal lighting on the boats but in union square like cool right yeah that that must have been a hell of a thing especially when it had the camouflage the dazzle camouflage yep and early photos of it um i don't know what color it was it i assume gray but perhaps not gray um but it was a solid, like, normal battleship mm-hmm. color. But, wow. I just, that must have been. In both forms, it must have been awe-inspiring. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, in addition to recruitment, the USS Recruit also hosted social events to draw attention to and raise funds for the war effort, which included vaudeville performances, dances, and boxing matches. <laughs> I want to go to a dance with sailors on the USS Recruit in Union Square, please. It's Fleet Week right now, I think. That's or maybe it was. I guess no. Fleet Week was last week because it's Memorial Day weekend. But um, that must have been truly magical. Oh, uh, I mean, Fleet Week is truly magical, <laughs> if you ask me. Yeah, just saying. Yeah. So many tight butts and tight pants. <laughs> just saying. Anyway, so um, it worked. The end result in the three years that she was on duty was that recruitment rates in New York City jumped 25-fold to more than 2,500 people. Wow. So uh, 2,500 being 25,000. Holy shit. 25,900 people in 1916 and it jumped 25 fold like that's amazing yeah so um apparently 
sailors with tight butts and tight pants was popular then too <laughs> i don't think it's ever not been popular mm, no could the, be wrong on that the uniforms haven't changed much no they really haven't yeah so unfortunately oh. or i suppose fortunately for the people who enjoy the park today yes it it isn't there anymore and the um, decommissioning of the ship happened in 1920 mm. as the ship's band played the Star Spangled Banner as the colors were lowered to the deck. Aww. Yep. And I, this was interesting to me and might just be a thing that stood out uh, in my autism brain. But the colors that it was lowering included its commission flag. So it was a fully commissioned battleship. Oh. Which is cool. That is cool. To me. Yep. Um, and initially there were plans for her to be reassembled on Coney Island in Brooklyn, um, where she was supposed to be a permanent Navy recruitment station. But that never happened. It's not entirely clear why that was, but the New York Times seems to think that it was probably because the cost of moving the ship ended up being greater than its actual value. Mm. And so when the ship was dismantled, the materials were probably repurposed. Um, there simply isn't more information than that, and I feel like there should have been. Yeah. But, um, I mean, somebody's got to know. There are for sure at least World War II-era recruitment stations that exist around the city. I feel like they should have like some paperwork somewhere. Right. But, um, but honestly, you never know. New York is nothing um, if not surprising. That, that is true. And it's totally possible that there's a chunk of that ship hanging out in someone's loft in Williamsburg. That would be or, so much fun. Yeah. I mean, also, he could be in a dank old basement of a bar in the village, like, say, Marie's Crisis. <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff yeah. downstairs at Marie's Crisis. I don't know what any of it is. <laughs> except there are bathrooms down there. Um, but... You never mm -hmm. know. Yeah. So uh, it would also not surprise me if some of it was in at the bottom of the Guanus Canal. Like, <laughs> and and New York people, I will, pr I, I do not know how many or how much those references are New York specifically meaningful or general public meaningful, but... Let's just say it wouldn't be strange. Indeed. Yep. So that is the USS Recruit, specifically the one from 1917. I believe there is still, um, even currently, a USS Recruit. That's amazing. Yep. And I believe USS is United States ship. I think so, too. Because HMS is Her Majesty's ship. So. So that tracks. 
<clears throat> yep. Anyway, so. So. There we go. You taught us about a ship that couldn't sink, basically because it's on land. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna t- I mean, I guess it could have sank into the subway tunnel. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Today, I'm going to talk about the fucking amazing, unsinkable Molly Brown. Ba-ba-ba! Uh, so, odds are you have definitely heard her name before. And yeah. odds are you have heard many a tall tale that wasn't true. But the truth. Damn it. <laughs> well, but here's the thing. The truths of her life are actually much, much cooler. All right. So much of what we think we know about Margaret. Oh, yeah, that's right. Her name was Margaret. She never went by Molly comes from the larger-than-life stories that were created after her death in 1932. Where is she from? Because Molly, I believe, was a possibly derogatory slang word. Um, it's She was given the nickname Molly um, from, like, the media, and it was not... It was just a, I think they thought Molly was just a more um, fun name. I don't know. She's from Missouri, from Hannibal, Missouri. Oh, I mean, I think that um, Ireland is. She's from, uh, she's, she's Irish. Well, then I think that, I think that might have just been a common thing to refer to. Irish women. Hmm. Um, that makes sense. Anyway, if that is offensive, I'm sorry. And <laughs> if I'm completely wrong, I'm also sorry. I'm just the squirrel on a treadmill. <laughs> so some of these myths are floated, like her floating down the Mississippi River as a baby, possibly even being rescued by Mark Twain himself. <laughs> to using, I want that to be true. <laughs> right? To using a Colt gun to command her Titanic lifeboat. Uh, yeah, many, many tales spun. Uh, after her death, the story of Margaret Brown, though it's well, like, her life is actually well documented, but immediately began to transform as a culture, I guess, searching for, like, the last of the great Western stories. Um, yeah. But they set her up as an uneducated, kind of unaccepted raw kind of figure hmm. um and the origins of this trend seems to start about a year after margaret's death gene fowler who is known as a quote wise cracking denver reporter known for his ability to spice up a story wrote about uh, the life of molly there we are <laughs> molly quote brown uh influenced by the rocky mountain times obituary fowler helped create much of the myth that we know today uh, he wrote that she was born two months early during a tornado and that her impoverished father was a drunkard. Me too. <laughs> yeah, but neither one of those is actually true. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't born in the middle of a tornado, I guess. So he also anyway. wrote that she couldn't read or write. Um, and his story became the basis for the play written by Richard Morris and Meredith Wilson, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Hence the name. But I'm going to take some time to set the record straight because, um, again, she's far more fucking incredible. Like, I want somebody to do an actual 
movie on her, like her actual life. Um, so Margaret Tobin Brown was born to Irish immigrants, John and Johanna Tobin, in 1867 in Hannibal, Missouri. She was one of six children, two of whom were from her parents, each parent's previous marriages. Their respective spouses both died and then they married each other. Um, so the Tobins were part of that wave of immigration following the first period of industrialization in America. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannibal, believe it or not, was a diverse community where Margaret was exposed to a variety of people and interests. And her parents found a group of like-minded Irish Catholic immigrants who supported both freedom and equality. Now, usually, you know me and my Catholics, um, but the Tobins got it right. Like, they had incredibly progressive views on everything. Um, And they Mm -hmm. valued education even for their daughters, which was not at all popular at the time. Margaret attended a private school where she was taught by her aunt until about the age of 13. She graduated from the eighth grade. Um, And it was, but it was the lessons that, like, she learned from her parents. Like, they drove her for personal growth and a, a commitment into participating in, like, the world around her. Like, be part of the world um that actually created the legend that she would become so margaret also encountered struggles of the laboring class because they were you know they were poor and when she graduated uh she began working at a factory i think it was a tobacco factory at the age of 13 long days low wages instability uh that pretty much characterized many in her community including her father And one of her dreams was to move west. Uh, Margaret and her brother Daniel actually followed those dreams and the national chain of migration, and they moved to Leadville, Colorado. Now, in Leadville, Margaret began working at a local department store, and it was there around the spring of 1886 that she met Joseph, James Joseph, otherwise known as J.J. Brown, Mm -hmm. a a local (laughs) mining foreman. After a brief courtship, they were married on September 1st, 1886, uh, and it was ultimately a love match for her. Oh, that's nice. Quote, I wanted a rich man, but I loved Jim Brown, she said of her husband. I I thought about how I wanted comfort for my father and how I determined to stay single until a man presented himself who could give the tired old man the things that I longed for him. Jim was as poor as we were and had no better chance in life. I struggled hard with myself in those days. I loved Jim, but he was poor. Finally, I decided that I was better off with a poor man whom I loved than a wealthy one whose money had attracted me. So I married Jim Brown. All right. Right. Soon after marrying, they moved into a two-room cabin in Stumptown, Colorado, which was closer to the mines where J.J. was a foreman at. Uh, Margaret began taking reading and literature classes with a tutor. And in August of 1887, the couple welcomed their first child, Lawrence, known as Larry. Less than two years later, in July of 1889, out popped Catherine, known as Helen, which I do not understand, but okay, was born. Uh, By then, they had relocated to 322 West 7th Street in Leadville, and by all accounts, they were living a comfortable... But oh, like, God, Leadville. Right? <sighs> they were living a comfortable but modest life. So not 
not too bad, but also not exactly, you know, flush. Um, at that time, Margaret worked in soup kitchens to help local mining families, and she's even believed to have been involved in the Colorado chapter of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Cool. Their lives changed, though, in 1893, and uh, in a way that they would never, I mean, never would have expected. So J.J. actually unearthed a new way of retrieving gold from the bottom of the Little Johnny Mine, which was owned by the Ibex Mining Company. Thanks to his discovery, J.J. was giving 12,500 shares in Ibex and a place on the company's board of directors, Whew. which instantly made him a very, very rich man. In well, <laughs> right? Uh, manifestation. Uh, in 1894, the Browns bought a thirty thousand Victorian mansion, thought a thirty thousand dollar Victorian mansion, which in today's money would be nine thousand three hundred or nine hundred thirty one thousand. Uh, in Denver, which is known as the Molly Brown House, and I have a link in the show notes where you can uh, take a tour of it, and it's 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 beautiful. Um, and in 1897, they built a summer house, a vocal lodge in southwest Denver near Bear Creek, which gave the family even more social opportunities. Uh, Margaret became a chapter of the Denver Women's Club, whose mission was the improvement of women's lives by continuing education and philanthropy. Uh she was still trying to adjust to like the trappings of society lady. Um, so she became, and I think she just used it actually as, um, I think she just loved to learn. I think she, she really did. Um, but she learned, she, she basically took that as an opportunity to become well immersed in the arts. She became fluent in French, German, Italian, and Russian. Wow. Uh, Right. She co-founded a branch in Denver, of the Alliance Francais to promote her love of French culture, and she lobbied for women's right to vote. Browns uh, gave parties. The Browns gave parties uh, were uh, like many, many, many like super socialites uh, from Denver attended, but she was unable to gain entry into the most elite group, the Sacred Thirty Six, which I will be doing in another episode but basically they attended exclusive bridge parties and had dinners held by louise sneed hill whom brown referred to as the snobbiest woman in denver (laughs) uh jj however was not interested in the social life that brown enjoyed and they began to drift apart which it sounds that wording sounds bad but i don't believe that she I think she used the socialness to grow her as a character, but also to use those connections to increase her philanthropy and being able to, you know, actually benefit the community around her. Like, not just to, you know, sit around and drink tea and gossip. Um, After 23 years of marriage, uh, Margaret and JJ privately signed a separation agreement in 1909. She received a $700 monthly allowance, which is equivalent to $23,000, to continue her travels and her political work. Um, spoiler alert, they actually never got divorced. They were just legally separated and just fine for the rest of their lives. Uh, Brown what? assisted in fundraising 
uh, for the Denver's Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, which was completed in 1911. She also worked with Judge Ben Lindsay to help destitute children and established, she literally helped establish one of the United States' first juvenile courts. Oh. <laughs> right? Huh. Much, much more interesting than being born in the middle of a tornado to me. Uh, yeah. Brown spent the first months of 1912 in Paris visiting her daughter until she received word from Denver that her eldest grandchild, Lawrence Palmer Brown Jr., was seriously ill. Um, so she immediately booked passage on the first available liner leaving for New York, the RMS Titanic. Oh, great. Yeah. Originally, her daughter Helen was supposed to come with her. But Helen, who was studying at the Sorbonne, decided to take a side trip to London with friends. So Brown boarded the Titanic as a first class passenger on the evening of April 10th. You may or may not know this, but the Titanic sank early on April 15th, 1912 at around... Yeah, don't say. <laughs> at around 2.20 a.m. after striking an iceberg at around 11.40 the previous night. Um, now... Brown helped other like other people board the lifeboats. And when I say that, I mean she was physically forced by two men to abandon helping, like abandon the ship and get on the sixth lifeboat. Um, more than a hundred like, more than fifteen hundred people aboard this so-called unsinkable ship of Titanic perished. There were a total of two thousand two hundred and twenty-four people on the ship in total. After her death in 1932, Brown was called Molly Brown and the unsinkable Mrs. Brown by authors because she helped in the ship's evacuation. She also took an oar herself in the lifeboat in the lifeboat to row and she earned she urged lifeboat crew to go back and save more passengers. Like when I she also had Seems like a badass. She had other passengers take oars and start rowing to keep warm. She used some of her own clothing to help people that were freezing. Her urgings were met with opposition from quartermaster Robert Hitchens, which was the crewman of in charge of Lifeboat Six, because he was fearful that they were uh, about going back because he didn't want the lifeboat to be like pulled down due to suction or mm -hmm. water would you know swamp the boat and you know in an effort. Uh, and also, uh, he was worried about like food and all that stuff because you know more mouths to feed and everything. They didn't know how long they were going to be in. Um, in the water. Right. Um, apparently after several attempts to urge Hitchens to turn back, Brown literally threatened to throw him overboard. <laughs> uh, but he still stood his ground. Now, upon being rescued by the ship RMS Carpathia, Brown proceeded to organize a committee with other first-class survivors. And that committee worked to secure basic necessities for the second and third class survivors and even performed informal counseling, which. Oh, I didn't even know that happened. Yeah. Um, How? Isn't she wow. amazing? So her fierce reputation like caught like wildfire and Margaret used it as a means to fuel her philanthropic efforts. Uh, in 1914, six years before the 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote, Brown actually ran for Colorado's U.S. Senate seat. But she ended her campaign to serve aboard as the abroad as the director for the American Committee for Devastated France during World War One ah. for her work organizing female ambulance drivers, nurses and food distributors. 
Brown was awarded the French Legion of Honor in 1932. Hmm. And in 1914, she contributed to the miners and their families during the 1914 coal mine disaster. And she organized the International Women's Rights Conference that year, which was held in Newport, Rhode Island. J.J. Brown sadly passed away September 5th, 1922. Margaret told newspapers that although she had met royalty and other great people around the world, quote, I have never met a finer, bigger, more worthwhile man than J.J. Brown. Hmm. So he left a, J.J. left vast yet complicated uh, real estate mining and stock holdings. It is literally unknown to the Browns and their lawyers how much was left in the estate. Prior to J.J.'s death, he had transferred a large amount of money to his children. Their children were also unaware of how much money Margaret had, but were displeased at the large amounts she spent on charity. Fuck them. Margaret and her children fought in court for six years to settle the estate. Uh, During the last years of her life, uh, Brown was an actress. She died in her sleep at 2.55 (laughs) p.m. on October 26, 1932, at the age of 65 in New York City's Barbizon Hotel. Subsequent, Subsequent autopsy revealed a brain tumor. She was buried next to J.J. at St. Bridget's Cemetery, now known as the Cemetery of the Holy Rood in Westbury, New York, which I have attached a link to view their tombstone. Following a small ceremony on October 31st, 1932, attended by close friends and family, where there was singing, but no eulogy. Hmm. Also, I want to throw in there that one of uh, Margaret liked to keep fit, and the way that she chose to keep fit was boxing. Hey, she could have been a boxer on the USS recruit. So that is... I would have paid to see that. Right? So that is the actual life of Miss Margaret, a.k.a. the unsinkable Molly Brown. Oh, wow. Isn't that That is so much more interesting than the lore. Right? She was, like, genuinely a just a badass and a decent woman you know like just sounds like it yeah like she yeah she was feisty she used her money for good she used her time for good uh she taught her children how to do the same thing she lived as a good example even you know even just being separated and still speaking so fondly of her husband like it's just I I think it's all pretty cool I do too she sounds like a very very modern woman right um in the best possible way and all the things just all the things that she did is so much more exciting than they've watered her down to be so I hope someday that somebody also sets the record straight with him a movie about her because I think it would be amazing and I would actually want. Yeah. That would be cool. So I think huh. that brings us to the weekly Wars Way to Die. So what you got? Subway torpedo. That would indeed suck. I'm yep. going with not being unsinkable. 
Yeah, I, I feel like going down with the Titanic is like a perennial <laughs> <laughs> worst way to die. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Man. That would suck. Yeah. So, hey, do you want to be spooky internet friends? Uh, obviously. Well, you can find us at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of the social medias, or just pop on over to bonesandbobbins.com. I'm on the wrong page. <laughs> and don't forget to rate and review this podcast because it pleases the internet gremlins and also the gremlins inside my brain. <laughs> And that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls. Yes. (laughs) And on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Mm -hmm. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. Or swim with them. No. Mm Mm-mm. I mean, unless you, like, need to cut yourself loose from something. Yeah, but I feel like I'd weigh it down and my luck I'd accidentally stab myself, you know? Okay, leave them Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.